There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg. Greg. Yes. Summer's over. Feels like it. Did you know that? I did, although it's 30 degrees, so I feel like we're still in it. But no, it's the end of the month and well, don't back gi- to school. Don't give away when we record this by oh, saying okay. things like Sorry that. But that. Yeah. just like that, that's right. The kids are back in school. Work's been getting pretty busy. And I find the fall is actually one of my favorite times when it comes to work because it becomes clear as to what's important at that time of year, whereas you're coming out of those summer months where it's a lot of lounging. Right on. Listen, this is a time to get to work and perhaps maybe even start thinking about that future winter getaway because winter's coming, Greg. So so I understand. It sounds like Game of Thrones. <laughs> yes. So we've spent the summer talking through some great points on the value of research, the effects of compounding, having a plan, things of that nature. Today, we're taking a detour from our normal conversation as we've got a guest joining us, Daniel Matalon. Perhaps he can tell me if I'm pronouncing his name correctly in a minute, is joining us. Daniel is an expert in the areas of survival economics and social justice. He's also the co-founder of Impact Launchpad, a UK-based venture studio for social impact incubation and development. Daniel, welcome to the show, and please let me know if I've pronounced your name properly. You did. Thank you very much, guys. It's great to be here, Colin. Thanks for having me, Greg. It's a pleasure. And listen, just to kick things off, Daniel, I know you mentioned to us earlier that you are a Canadian, a born Canadian, but where are you joining us from today? Where are you located? I happen to be in Austin, Texas today. Okay. Is that home base for your operations or? For one half of our operations, which is headed by an American living in Austin, the nonprofit organization called Is There Enough? IsThereEnough.org is the website for people to learn about our initiatives there. So that is based out of Austin and our venture studio is based out of the UK. Right on. Well, Greg, you and I have both been to Austin a number of times. Several times, you're right. Very fun city. That's great. Very eclectic group. It is. Well, Daniel, to kick off, like, tell us your story. How did you end up where you are today? By accident, like most interesting (laughs) things. (laughs) I've had a passion for social entrepreneurship, which is what we used to call social impact years back. And early on, I got introduced to the ideas of Buckminster Fuller, who was the design scientist we mostly know for the geodesic dome, had 50 predictions when he passed for the year 2000, 49 of those 50 came true. The 50th almost came true, which is ending world hunger. We're doing a lot better on that than many people in the world know. He proposed an idea called the world game to replace our war games. And it's basically how to make the world work for 100% of humanity. And as I became involved at the later end of my career in developing companies and businesses and organizational strategists and moved into social impact investing, my partner at the time and I developed a concept to de-risk impact investing, which is one of two critical issues for the growth of social impact investing, the other being accurate measurement, which as economists, we all are pseudo 
of the three of us perhaps on our pathways is a really important topic as well. And along the way of aligning people to a new concept of a social impact investment bank that could yield social impact bonds the way that we once upon a time in our grandfather's time during wartime, we developed war bonds, which had certain kind of structure and backing to fight the threats to human existence in war. We're now obviously in a moment of human existence being on the line now. We would like to see the world issue not just green bonds, which are very popular, but social impact bonds on a broader basis. And we think that a bank has to be developed for that. So it's a big macro concept that anytime anybody's taking time to walk through the details with me, they think it's fantastic, genius, inspired. Hope you can pull it off, Daniel, right. is what they used to say to me. And we're on the verge now of doing that. We have collateral that's staked towards that effort. Really proud to say, and we'll officially announce that in a couple of months with details. But along the way of aligning people to this pipiest of pipe dreams, I was in a room with some prospective investors and backers, and I think I uttered it for the first time. I think I said, isn't there enough out of some exasperation for what we were proposing to do. Because if you think about it, when everybody goes, wow, that's a great idea. I hope you can pull it off. The answer to that is you can pull it off. And this is true of anything, any entrepreneur out there, if you have enough agreement to it. And is there enough conversation, campaign, however people like to refer to it, which we've done thousands of hours of social research in 22 countries now, tends to breed the realization in people that the only thing missing between them and their objectives is an agreement or a few thousand. And human beings are not very good at agreement. We could obviously look around us and see. Even wonderful Canada has now been engaged in tribalism mimicking the United States. That's absolutely horrific for me to watch. And so we inadvertently along this pathway, as people began to pick up on the conversation of Is There Enough, which is now sort of a formal structure that people replicate all over the world. And we do a lot with on places like Clubhouse and things like that. What we have found is that as people engage in that conversation, they come also to the realization, and this might be especially interesting to your audience, that we don't really make a clear distinction between money and wealth. And once we begin to ask the question of what wealth really is, and Buckminster Fuller had his own ideas on what that is, he basically, I'll shorten and translate him a little bit. He basically said it was survival over time. And if you have survival handled, your standard of living increases by your amount of choice. And if you look at wealth in that perspective, then you could really say that wealth is not based on resources. It's not based on assets. It's based on agreement, especially if you want to change wealth. And it's also true of social justice. And it's also true of power. And it's also true of Anything else that we want to do, what we think makes life better, has to do with building new agreement that we didn't build before. So we inadvertently became, let's say, an agreement academy. And so in the Is There Enough conversation, the nonprofit part of what we do, people engage in all sorts of weird and wacky ways of addressing this enough question. It's not scarcity. It's not abundance. It's about enough. Interesting. So you've got the two sides, basically, of what you do, the social impact investing side, which is separate from the is there enough nonprofit side. So if we look at the social impact investing for the time being, for the benefit of our listeners and for us, <laughs> what would be an example of the kinds of projects that social impact investments would be used for? One of the most helpful 
answers to that question is to look at the 17 sustainable development goals of the United Nations. And even for those who are not big fans of the United Nations as an institution, have a lot to admire about the public-private partnership that has occurred since 2015 when those were developed. And it's inspired a legion, I found myself starting to say an army of, and I always replace my war words with other words. That's one of our (laughs) sub-conversations. But a legion of people around the world who have been inspired like myself to develop a focus, either in a nonprofit or a for-profit side, on what can advance things like clean water, women's empowerment, access to education. And what do businesses do? They solve problems. We have a water scarcity in the world that's from my standpoint, unnecessary. And I say that because we've invested a lot of research and time in developing, and we'll be developing significant finance for atmospheric water generation that does not have to touch the water in the ground. We have 37 trillion liters of water in the atmosphere at any given time. And yet we have in Mississippi right now, they're trying to truck in bottles in order to deal with the fact they have no water when The technology has gotten to the place where you can, powered only by the sun, draw as much water as you need. And once you have water, what else do you have? The ability to grow in vertical farming, ability to create fish farms and so on. So our investment thesis, and everybody's got a, I like to say, you don't really make money from your holdings. You make it from your investment thesis, if that makes sense. And our investment thesis is that we don't really have an innovation crisis for our big threatening problems, we have an implementation crisis. And this is an example of one such investment. There's a Canadian company we invested in a number of years back, and they developed a way to produce omega-3 without having to take it from fish, but actually from the seaweed that the fish eat. And that company's done extremely well. And there are lots of solutions like that that can be entrepreneurially financially attractive, and at the same time, be doing something for humanity and the planet at the same time. There shouldn't have to be a trade-off between one and the other. Greg, let me just jump in for a sec. I I just got a question about, so very interesting stuff. You talk about social impact bonds and that stuff. How does that differ from what the World Bank does? It's really interesting that you bring up the World Bank because when Early on in developing the concept, somebody suggested to me that the World Bank would be a great partner for us. And we're working towards that goal, particularly from some of the recent commitments that have been made to us towards this bank. And we highly expect that they may play a part in some of the things we're doing. The World Bank issues their own bonds. So do a lot of private entities. Salesforce has made a big push into social impact bonds. What we don't have is a ecosystem that can rival a war bond. And when I say that, when we talk about retail investors, I don't know if the numbers are the same in Canada, but typically around the world, we're talking about the upper 10% of society that's still considered part of the investor class, even at the retail level. That leaves out 90% of all of the world's wealth that's held by everybody else that could be pooled together so long as there was a safety measure to protect those interests the way we have an FDIC in the United States and the Deposit Insurance Corporation in Canada and throughout the world, we have some 60 DICs, Deposit Insurance Corporations. And our proposal, and this isn't something we would own, it would be like open source and we would get to use it kind of thing, but we want to author the development of an ecosystem where we can collateralize a Deposit Insurance Corporation on a global basis 
where investors could, and non-investors, just savers, could actually park their savings, have it protected by a third-party entity of solid collateral that would rival their home country's DIC. Not to replace it, but just to rival it. If we could accomplish that, we would unleash an enormous amount of capital, but we even take the entities I deal with now for social impact investing, which is typically family offices, high net worth individuals, some hedge funds, and so on, and they would be able to increase their stake as well. Because social impact investing on the private world today is largely a rich man's game. It's for somebody who, alternative to their philanthropy, decide to invest their money instead in order to get a return. And it's growing rapidly. I think the last numbers, the Global Impact Investing Network, that's thegin.org, if people want to look that up, T-H-E-G-I-I-N.org. I think it's growing at some 25% annually, which you guys can tell me that's a pretty impressive sector increase year over year, but it's nowhere near what we need to meet the arguable on this number, the three and a half trillion deficit in investment that we've already earmarked in the 17 sustainable development goals I mentioned before. And just to land my plane on this point, if we've already identified that there's three and a half trillion missing and we're not investing in it, it means our existing finance structures are not able to support what is essentially human infrastructure. So I think that's left up to the private space to do it, but we have to de-risk it in order to grow it. And if we de-risk it, we can not only attract existing capital, I would even, and this may be controversial to your audience, I believe we can even manufacture capital to go towards saving humanity. What's interesting, because it sounds like, too, there's a lot of individual foundations. If you think of the Bill Gates Foundation or the Open Philanthropy Project and things like that, which seem to have the same social impact goals. Absolutely. And so what you're talking about is making those kinds of investments, which they are, they're grants in many cases, but they're expected to provide a return, hopefully, to get value from the grants or the investments themselves. So you're talking about maybe democratizing that to the average person, as opposed to only the few that can have that kind of impact on their own. Yeah, I'm glad we have that on record because you said it a lot better than I did. (laughs) (laughs) To democratize the kind of institutional efforts that are going on or high net worth kind of institutional efforts, not just government ones, to really scale up what is really a responsibility all of us have. Making the world work for 100% of humanity is up to 100% of humanity, really. And to democratize that with solid storytelling and technology, both of those things are needed in this quotient so that we can scale it up rapidly what else would we need a thousand flowers blooming than to save the future? So it's in no way in competition with any of that stuff. And that's also why we've launched this effort. This bank that we're talking about developing, this DIC that can issue these bonds, is designed to be ownerless. And the global impact funds that it will generate, which would be started with $100 million at a time, each of those funds would be ownerless as well. People like me who manage and develop those funds and develop projects in those funds, we can all get very rich doing that. So it's not like we have to sacrifice the entrepreneurial spirit for this. This is not a socialist in a non-political sense. It's not a socialist version of this. It is very much a democratized capitalist version of this. 
which is controversial to some people, but we think that incentive is essential, personal incentive. So I have prepared a talk upcoming for some business school students on social impact. And my first question to them is, what will we call social impact investing in the future? And I'll let them be silent or give me some answers. And I'll say, we'll call it investing because it will be commonplace for us to look at the collateral effect of our profit and loss as not just our dollars, but our actual wealth. This may be a diversion, I'm not sure, but you mentioned the world game. Can you tell us what is the world game? The world game that Buckminster Fuller phrased is designed to replace our war games. And the world game is simply how to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest time possible through spontaneous collaboration without ecological offense or disadvantage to anyone. That's the full text of it, to which we shortened it to, is there enough? And posed it as a question. And there are a lot of other ways to answer that question. Great questions don't require an answer or even one answer, but again, a thousand flowers blooming. Our focus on how to answer that call is to finance it. <laughs> oh, and I think it's finance or finance. I can't remember which one you guys We have that about. debate every week here. So uh, <laughs> well, I was going to say earlier, like you said finance, and I was like, well, there's the Canadian coming out in them. <laughs> and now I said it finance, which comes from my sort of globe trotting. But that's what our answer to the world game is. If you want to speed up time, money is a great way to speed up time. And raising capital into a pool that's strictly for that focus gives us the best chance of scaling up that infrastructure. And clearly, governments are not in a functional place to address this existential problem. And we see it today in Mississippi and Pakistan as we record this. How do you address the cynics among us who might say, well, yeah, it all sounds great, but there has to be some damage somewhere in order for there to be some good somewhere else, whether it's the energy industry, which of course we're very close to here in Alberta, or any other area of commerce where it's hard to get everybody on board. How do you do that? I guess maybe other than one person at a time. Well, in you posing the question, you somewhat answered your own question because we all think it's a great idea so long as we get everybody to agree to it, which now tells you why we became an agreement academy in the world. It was quite inadvertent and accidental in that regard. And it's surprising when you look at where the genesis of this idea was just four years ago and where we are now, where we have actual financial commitments we're getting ready to announce to the public towards this effort. It took thousands of one by one by one by one conversations to eventually other people wanting to talk about it in more of a group-like setting and then maybe inviting me onto a podcast like this <laughs> for people to go, well, if that's the only thing that's really missing is agreement, how about we start forging some? I talked to a prospective investor four weeks ago and worth several hundred million dollars. And he took a look at a deck we have about what we're doing and he went, great dream. Humanity's not ready for it, is <laughs> what his answer was. And I said, well, if that's what you think, how about you jump in and help us? That's the response. And we've continued that conversation and we are deliberating still about some involvement there. And essentially, if everyone in the sound of my voice began to question what agreement even is and began to experiment, is wealth really based on agreement, not on resources? Let me give you a little clue for those of you listening out there, 
if you still think wealth is based on resources, the Democratic Republic of Congo, or what we know as the DRC, has 24 trillion worth of assets in the ground, and they can't get it up. Not because they don't have machines, it's because they don't have enough agreement. And what do they have? They have a lot of war. Because the opposite of war is not peace. The opposite of war is agreement from a proactive stance. And so my answer to you is, is we have a goal on the nonprofit side on this. Is there enough conversation that for many people is unrelated to our social impact goals? They just want to make the world better, but they don't necessarily come to the conversation of social impact investment. And we're launching a treaty in 2023, a treaty of humanity, not of nations, that's all dedicated to this concept of agreement over war. And we intend to that be signed by 100 million people over five years. And if we ran out of steam after we got 50,000 people, well, what would be the ripple effect of those 50,000 people walking around the world being something of a post-warrior? And what kind of impact would they make on their communities, their societies, their families, and their lifetime? So this is kind of a game I feel like we can't lose, no matter what the outcome is. And my invitation to all the cynics out there is, underneath your cynicism is dashed hope. So it's time to reconnect with your responsibility to your hope, not to other people who dashed your dreams and turned you into a cynic from all those times that things didn't work out. This is the big problem of making the world work for 100% of humanity, is we don't evaluate risk in its proper context. The real risk is not taking any risk. And of course, you have to be sensible. You guys are devoted to it in your financial philosophy of diversification as we are. Diversification is a big part of our under the hood secret of how we're able to justify to our investors what we're capable of doing when it gets down to the brass tacks. But no action at all just to be safe actually turns out to be the most dangerous thing. But isn't that the US right now? Not to get political, but Aren't you describing the fact that you have the left and the right and they can't agree on pretty much anything these days? How do you get both sides to the Agreement Academy? There's a page, if you find it on our website, called The Core Conversations. And one of those is values over positions. And so you can imagine I get drawn into a lot of political conversation. I like to say to my friends on the left and my friends on the right, there's the left and the right and the law. The law is what really represents society, not the people who are occupying their temporary positions in government, because that's what's really left as a legacy. And when I say the law, I don't just mean laws written on books. I also mean unwritten laws. Those are important, too. We call them customs for a reason. We have norms that are unwritten. Those are important, too. These are things that hold our culture together. And so when I talk to people who are angry at the law, which there's a lot of reasons to be angry at the law that's unjust, that you think is unjust, do you value it? When you tell me about your love of country against people who you think don't love the country, do both people have a share of the value of that, even though they express it differently? And so when we invite people to that conversation, we say, let's say a Trump supporter and a non-Trump supporter, can they, through some method, I mean, in our social research, they do because we ask them to, but if there was like, an incentive, kind of like the way you sing a national anthem before a hockey game, that you could simply just agree, we're both part of the same country. Now let's argue about everything else. We've tested this. There's a different outcome on that. That conversation tends to bend towards a little more respect for human life that disagrees with you than the other one of my facts are better than your facts. (laughs) Does that somewhat answer that question? Yeah, I think so. 
as you're talking, it just reminded me of, I went to a Calgary Flames game last year. Of course, our local team, Go Flames Go. And during the national anthem, to which, of course, they sing it at every home game, they sort of painted the ice with lights, blue and yellow, to represent Ukraine. And it was quite touching the way that the whole crowd came together in support of Ukraine in that moment. So it's just in what you described, it kind of reminds me of that, that there are people on the left, people on the right, and then there's this thing in the middle that everybody wants to hope for. Which I'm going to put a word on is a search for values first and position second. We've brought people together around the subject of abortion. And what you're seeing go on in the United States is filtering into Canada, and it is all over the world. I have a strong relationship with the country of Bermuda, and Bermuda has a Bermuda First movement, and that's only 50,000 people. So that tells you this is a humanity thing, not just an American thing. People who are so-called topically pro-life don't believe that people who are so-called topic pro-choice care about human life. That's just not true. I mean, in my case, I am politically what's considered pro-choice, but I I'm obviously about 100% of humanity, so you can't say that I'm not pro-life from a real value standpoint, Kenyan. And I just happen to think that the life of the mother has more matter than the life of the unborn, and I respect both, but I've made my political choice there. But it doesn't mean I can't respect somebody else that thinks life begins at conception, because that's a very pure kind of love of humanity that I have to respect, even though I can debate what makes most sense to solve that problem, should it be done by a government institution or by somebody with their family and their religious upbringing and whatnot to make that choice. So there's always a pathway if we can state the obvious value, state the obvious, like, hey, two Americans saying, like, we're both Americans, now let's argue about everything else. There's value in stating that obvious if it is a value itself. And all we're looking to do out of the is there enough conversation is raise up the concept of agreement as a value, not as a transaction. We tend to think of an agreement as my terms and conditions, when I'm getting paid and what do I have to do and so on and so forth. But value of agreement for agreement's sake, without having to give up my positions to do so, has I mean, I'm reporting to you, this is not my opinion or my theory, I'm reporting to you that people who engage in conversation that way, that conversation bends towards collaboration rather than the automatic bend towards conflict that we see so prevalent in global society, not just in America or Canada. One thing that strikes me when you talk about 100% of humanity and things like that, and when we talk about social impact investing, the first thing I think about is climate change or effects of climate change. And Do you find that in order to get people, back to my how do you get people on side question, does it take something extreme to sort of make people wake up to the reality of, say, what's going on in the part of the world, let's say, that doesn't affect them directly? Because obviously, we get fairly focused on what's happening here. And so droughts in other parts of the world or a lack of fresh drinking water, we don't think about that a lot sitting here in Calgary, where we're at the base of a couple of rivers and we sort of get the water before anybody else does. So does it take a climate crisis for people to sort of wake up and say, okay, I guess this is a problem after all. Maybe it's not just what's going on here that matters. I need to take you on tour with me. Your questions are so good. (laughs) (laughs) We talk about this point a lot. We think making the world work for a hundred percent of humanity needs a different approach than simply shocking people into it. However it happened, our society 
has evolved in our brains for those who study neuroscience. Some of us focus more on social outcomes and some of us focus more on individual outcomes. And it's kind of like male and female. We carry both of them within our bodies. And I think if you're going to make it work for 100% of humanity, you're going to have to make it work for the greedy guy along with that. It's a trajectory like the American constitution says towards a more perfect union. We're never going to quite get there, but it's a trajectory, 100%. I'm an Al Gore climate reality trained activist. I'm very proud of that. But I differ with a lot of my brethren in that group who want to increase the shock value to finally wake people up and we'll finally get something done. And we've been saying that for 30 years. Will that finally do it? Do you need more than watching an inconvenient truth? I have sat with Al Gore's five-hour presentation that most people never get to see. And I saw people, multiple people going to the bathroom to throw up during it because it was so horrific. This is in 2019. So horrific, the things that he was showing us that the media just didn't have time to get to because there were so many climate things happening on the same day and they just didn't fit into the evening news. And so we're living in an extinction event right now. And the question is, is are we going to be able to mobilize people out of shock when many people feel like they can't make a difference and it's just too overwhelming and they just give up? And I think what we have to do is inspire people that they can do something so that they can see a personal vested interest, first starting with agreement itself. This was sort of my stumble upon discovery, is that I could appeal to people who really don't care about making the world work for all of us. They just want to make it work for themselves. And guess what? They're welcome in our conversation because if they're making agreement in order to advance and tell me a profession where being better at agreement tomorrow than you were today isn't going to advance your career. So if we advance that agreement itself is in your self-interest and your family's interest and all of that, and then let's start talking about how can we turn the problems the world has into a business opportunity? Isn't that what businesses do is solve problems and get paid to do that? I can tell you it's done a lot for me personally, but I'm not going to come out here and talk about it like self-help. But if I wanted to use it for that, I can. So my answer to that question that you pose is I think we've shocked and woken up people as much as we can. We've mentioned it twice already, but a third of Pakistan is underwater right now. Do we need any more shock value? What we need are solutions and demonstrations to all those people who've given up, the cynics out there, the people who don't care, all of that, that something can be done and it's in our vested interest to do it for our own self, even if we don't care about the rest of the world. And if we can take those guys, along with people like us who do tend to think about these bigger pictures and what we can do about it, we have more of a chance to move the ball than anything else. What are great movements made out of? Coalitions, unexpected coalitions. And we need to have less of a war, and it is a war, between those who get it and those who don't, between those who protect the environment and those who don't. These are inadvertent wars as well. They're not wars with a gun in hand, but they're absolutely an us and them mentality, a tribal mentality that's causing us to slow down what's possible with solutions that we've already earmarked exist, but there isn't enough capital, which what is capital based on, but our friend agreement, there isn't enough capital in place to move them forward. That's where I think we need to shift the conversation. Well, we're heading into our most scarce resource here, Greg, and that's time. Well, that's right. Clearly, obviously, a 30-minute podcast 
scratches the surface only of what you've got going on, Daniel. So where can people get more information about the things you're involved in? There's two things I would point people to. One is the isthereenough.org website is chock full of stuff, including a survey. It's a bit of a long form survey, but people seem to really enjoy it. That makes our case about why humanity needs an expression of a treaty, a treaty of humanity, not nations. It's pretty interesting. Our core conversations are listed there as well. Wait, that was isthereenough.org. Correct. Okay. And on that website, also an opportunity for people to participate in this conversation if they're on Clubhouse or they then want to just observe what we do on Clubhouse because we restream over YouTube, Facebook, and a bunch of other platforms. But there's a schedule of events where we apply the question of is there enough, which is deliberately ambiguous and possibility oriented, and apply it to something specific, like that technology I mentioned we'll cover on is there enough water. And another time we're talking about is there enough truth, where we're examining how do we find truth in an age of fake news, things like that. And we bring together experts related to that particular topic, and we talk with them for about an hour. Sometimes it's a highlight interview with one expert, but usually a panel. And then the audience that's attending and those on other formats like YouTube can either type questions or ask questions directly and participate in the conversation. And I highly recommend that because there's more to this onion to peel once you begin to really apply what this question of enough means when you apply it to whatever you love. Like, is there enough diversification would be a really interesting conversation to have amongst a group of investors. And what does that really mean? And what is enough diversification and what's not enough diversification? So Clubhouse would be a terrific way for people to be actually engaged themselves in this conversation. I can see how that conversation can go. We've sort of made fun of that question. Is there enough diversification in investing? And because you'll hear experts, so-called experts say, you're diversified if you own five stocks. And then you hear other experts say, well, you need to have 30. And then you hear others say you need to have 10,000. So I can only imagine how that applies to your discussions about diversification. And I also want to highlight that one of the leaders of our conversation, Christine Bredson, a Canadian in Ontario that you might likely want to have on your podcast in the future, has a fascinating discussion about is there enough legacy and what is legacy all about? She's just a guru of that sort of stuff. So you'll discover her on Clubhouse with us as well. Another fellow Canadian. Go Canada. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Greg, normally we finish with a speed round. We've had a longer than anticipated conversation, but a really good one. Do we want to just ask like one or two questions of Daniel just, just to finish it off? So you've done all the heavy lifting. I appreciate you being an open book, Daniel. Let's just finish off with a couple of quick fun ones. And speaking of fun, what do you do for fun when you're not working? You sound like a busy guy, but there's got to be something else. Oh boy, I'm painfully tasked with that because I thrill with this stuff so much and it's really a life B for me and a whole new lease on life to have this conversation. But I have a war game that I still play, which is poker. So I love to play online poker. (laughs) Right on. (laughs) And I'm a huge movie buff. So I spend a lot of my time usually on historical stuff because it's so impressing upon this conversation. So those are two of my passions. And if I get a chance to water ski, that's my favorite sport. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, yeah, Greg's a water skier. Well, I used to be a water skier. Good for you for still doing it because... <laughs> Daniel, I have a picture of Greg in his younger years, water skiing <laughs> on a chair that was screwed to two water skis. Oh, it's, oh yeah. my gosh. 
we called it lounge skiing. It wasn't really water skiing. It was more lounge skiing. So that's what happens when you're young and you have too much beer and too much time. So uh, anyway, well, listen, we should let you go. Daniel, really appreciate the time today and the conversation. It's been a fascinating one and an eye-opening one, I'm sure, for the listeners. Definitely fits in your odd, wacky topic roster. Oh, there sure. you go. Okay. Oh, I like it. I mean, it was a great conversation yeah. and it's nice to have something real to talk about that is slightly different than the norm of what we've been talking about. Not to say the things we have been talking about aren't important in their own right. They're just a different topic. This is just a much bigger topic, should we say? Yes, much bigger. Yes, yes. So thank you, Daniel, and I uh, appreciate it. I appreciate your time. And I guess that's it, Greg. That's it. Well, until next time. Okay, until next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.